was just growing up, like questioning myself, and I couldn't really have any approachable, accessible, and reliable information or professionals at all. Like, who could I actually talk to? No way. Even more so in Japanese, right? Yeah. Because that's another barrier is to find the information in Japanese, not in English. Exactly. Yeah, that that's a good point actually. Because like when I started learning English and I beca- became a little bit more comfortable, you know, using English, I finally found great resources that I could, you know, use for identifying myself more clearly and mm-hmm. like accordingly try myself to be more who I am. Feminine Tokyo Podcast, where we talk intersectional feminism with the feminists of Japan. Episode 5, LGBT, Japan, and us. Hi, Yoshi. Uh, How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming to the podcast. We're going to talk today for the episode 5 of Femin Tokyo podcast. Mm -hmm. We're not in Tokyo. We're currently in Matsumoto Station. Yay! Uh, Matsumoto is amazing. It's just surrounded by nature. It has a great castle. So Matsumoto is just a few hours away from Tokyo. It's a great place. I advise anyone to come and visit it and uh, visit Yoshi in the coming few months because you won't be here for long but we'll talk about that again right you know fortunately today we're going to jump in into the episode five but before that we do have a small message to give to people so before we start today's episode i'd like to have you some disclaimer so since we are talking about sex and sexuality it's going to be a little provocative for quite a bit of people so make sure it's sensitive but it's not to offend anyone. So if you feel uncomfortable, you are always welcome to leave a pause. Uh, this episode is definitely uh, based on sexuality uh, in Japan and other countries. So make sure you're good with that before starting. That being said, uh, what I would like to do before we talk a bit more about you is maybe check our pronouns and mm-hmm. see how we feel today. My name is Sam. I am going with she and her. I am a white cisgender straight woman just to put me on the spectrum of who I am in society and how would you define yourself? All right so my name is Yoshi and uh, my pronouns are he they and I am East Asian cisgender and gender non-conforming gay and demisexual man. Right uh, you know I might, I might have a question about that if that's fine for you would you help me understand what is demisexual? Oh sure so demisexual is one of the sexual orientations that falls within asexuality so basically I am asexual I do not experience much sexual attraction to people random people but when I develop sense of comfort and a connection with a specific person I can experience some sexual attraction to that person specific person so that's a demisexuality you really have an expertise that should be shared to everyone who's talking who's listening to the podcast you have a pretty intense international experience uh you've been especially in Lithuania yeah almost three years and I was actually going to be there like four, four months, year, excuse me, years. Mm-hmm. But like because of the COVID situation, I couldn't stay there, you know. That's you had the... to come back, yeah, for sure. Right. Uh, you're definitely not the only one in that kind of situation. True. Uh, the COVID really forced a lot of people to just cancel their plans. You have uh, published research 
about sexual communication mm -hmm. and the importance of social environment. It's on uh, Yoshi's profile on, on Instagram and LinkedIn. He has a link tree that you can go consult and everything is published on there. He also has a great uh, thesis that I really enjoyed also, even though it's a hundred pages long, <laughs> but it has all the topics you want to listen about, about sexuality. And you also happen to have a podcast yourself. Yeah, Psych in a Sexology. Yes. yes, you're talking about sex and, you know, any aspect that is related to it in it so well. I think you have what, how many, how many episodes are out now? Four or five? I have four episodes yeah. yet, yeah. Uh, then the last thing that I wanted to mention is that you do have future plans coming up for you in a few months. You're mm -hmm. going to Canada. Yeah, just two months, less than two months, and I'm super excited. At the same time, nervous. But, you know, yeah, I can start my research career there, like to study more about sex and sexuality, mm -hmm. especially. We'll talk about it later, but demisexuality and gay men's extrahibitionism. That's my expertise of the studies. But I really wanted to do episodes about LGBTQAI+, because June was the month of awareness uh, for those communities. And I wanted to just start off by maybe asking if you have any input, any specific topic you'd like to share as a member of the LGBTQI plus community in Japan for you. Right, sure. So I can talk a little bit about my personal experiences back in 2010s. Mm -hmm. So I was still adolescent and uh, I actually didn't really have much support systems in that, you know, back in that time. I was so uncertain, you know, like what's going on with me. I didn't even know the term gay, that simple word gay. I didn't know. When I actually looked at some information online, I just found out, okay, there are like quite discriminatory words in Japan, like homo, you know, it's still used in Europe and other countries as well. But mm -hmm. I was like, okay, maybe that's kind of like me. I am uh, the person who should be discriminated. And uh, in Japan in general, though, like not only in 2010s, but also even nowadays, a lot of people feel super oppressed and suppressed because of like social stigma around sex and sexuality, not only just sexual orientation. From that time on, I actually you know, started identifying myself as gay more proudly and openly. And actually, I perceive a society completely differently so like what you feel and what you actually see are totally different you mm -hmm. know what i mean like mm -hmm. it's so complicated psychological stuff but so everything's like like hatred or discrimination are in your mind of course it's out there in society but still if you can let it go you can also feel more liberated and understood to some extent mm -hmm. so you can express who you are even in japan place is not an absolute matter of any social issues actually because it happens everywhere mm -hmm. so you can change on your experiences and perception yeah the, the first probably the first barrier is to acknowledge that if you can get rid of all that negativity and, and all the discrimination then it's the first step of freeing yourself mm -hmm. and accepting who you are because it's okay but the discrimination in society is also very important and it's very real. And, you know, something as simple and as common as, you know, gay couple not being able to rent an apartment in Japan, 
that's still something that happens and it's still impacting you whether you're freed or not as a LGBTQI plus mm-hmm. uh, community member. So I think the first step that you mentioned is important. And then the second step is to talk about the systemic discrimination to get rid of it right. one day. And another topic that I wanted to um, speak with you about is, you know, something very recent that happened with Osaka. I think it was even less than a month ago that we had, we, we saw a judgment being passed that basically it's kind of difficult to, uh, to put into words, but basically they declared that forbidding uh, gay marriage, LGBTQI plus marriage with the same sex person as you they basically decided that it was not against the constitution right. to forbid gay marriage. Mm-hmm. That's just what's, what was decided in Osaka. And it was a big blow because a lot of associations and a lot of private people who were looking for it to be able to get a marriage um, in Japan were following that closely. And I don't think they expected that outcome because in Hokkaido a year ago, in 2021, there was the opposite thing decided. Uh, right. Hokkaido, which is a, a different prefecture than Osaka, and they decided that it was against the constitution to forbid gay marriage. So it was a good sign. And then Osaka happened. So I think it was a big blow to the community. Do you do you remember how you felt about it? Yeah, I was plain shocked, like kind of disappointed, mm-hmm. but not as much as I, you know, used to experience back in Lithuania. <laughs> but you know, still like thinking about those who want to form a family you know here in japan you know just like heterosexual couples i felt then you know feeling super disappointed and hurt actually it's like i just like couldn't help myself like you know oh what could i do but i just like keeping you know voice up you know voicing up so that's all what I can do so far. That's why I'm just doing podcasts as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes marriage can be a security. You know, if True. your partner ends up in the hospital and you're not officially married, mm-hmm. you might not be able to visit them. Right. Uh, if you want to have a family and if you want to have kids, so many partners of same sex do not have the parental authority and identity over the kids. Uh, because they're not married, because they cannot get married. And this is the reason why marriage should be an option for all. If you don't want to get married, that's fine. Yeah. But if you do want to get married, like if you want to give a visa to your partner because you're about to move or something, then you should be able to get married. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's really, it's a big issue. And it is important to mention that Japan is the only country in the G7 who's still not allowing uh, gay marriage. Well, you know, like that final, ru- not really final, but like their ruling so far, especially like Osaka court, it doesn't really reflect like people's like general public's like opinions, like feelings toward LGBTQ plus people. Like they just ignore and like made a decision solely you know, on their own. I'm like, okay, um, is it really democracy kind of thing? You know, of course, it's supposed to be fair, you know. In all fairness, they have to make all the decisions. <laughs> so I'm like, um, well, there are a lot of, like, Osaka activists, like, from even, like, other parts of Japan, but, like, why? Why then? Yeah. So you feel there's a disconnect between uh, 
the government and the yeah. institution, the official institution, and what Japanese people think. Yeah, That's I think so. Yeah, because yeah. like I also like heard some kind of news that 60 or 70% of the Japanese population, they actually agree with same-sex marriage as like legal marriage forms. Like, I saw that too. Right? I saw it. Uh, one thing, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, Japanese people cannot elect directly their prime minister, right? No. no. So you go through... You go through groups, right? Through political groups who will themselves elect someone they will choose. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And I think it's complicated when it's a system like that. It's difficult to get people to care and to get involved because they feel like whatever they do, it's not going to have an impact. Yeah, exactly. The political life. Right. Shinto, while it technically does not forbid gay marriage, yeah. the reality of things on the field is that it's still impossible to get married in a Shinto shrine mm -hmm. with a person of the same sex. Right. And something that's even more complicated is that a lot of Shinto um, associations are linked with the government and they are openly against, you know, gay communities, LGBTQI plus communities, and they are impacting political decisions. And it's Shinto. I think of, for example, quite a strong gay culture in manga and anime. Though some people have been pointing out to me that it's not always safe and it can be quite toxic with a lot of stereotypes. But still, you know, that being said, it is something that surprised me when I arrived here. You know, you go to Kinokuniya in Japan, which is a library, a bookstore, and you see openly gay manga on display, you know, on the shelves. And I can tell that it is something that you would not see in France, for example, the country I'm from. Uh, the LGBTQIA plus contents tend to be on the side or not there alone or hidden away. And if I think about kabuki, for example, that's another aspect of the Japanese culture, which is uh, kind of a theater looking like play where men play the part of women and they are dressed as women. And then you have Takarazuka, which is the opposite of Kabuki, basically. It's a theater play with just women who play uh, the roles of men. You know, thinking about like BL or Kabuki, like mostly, especially like BL, like it's being developed by women or girls. Mm -hmm. So pretty much, pretty much like Elako masculinity is definitely observed. But as you mentioned, like it has so much stereotypes, so many stereotypes, like man should be like that and that and but i think it's still good because like men can be vulnerable as well you know express themselves like emotionally so much like to you know form a romantic relationship with a specific person but still like the expressions of like bl mangas especially drawn by women and girls that represents quite wrong expression of like actual gay you know relationships and so it's just romanticized You know, on one hand, it's like pretty much like destigmatizing toxic masculinity. On the other hand, it just like, you know, kind of like miseducating teenagers or like, you know, people in general, in what way people should be. And I think it kind of like an entertainment. So like we can definitely set boundaries between actual like gay people or other LGBTQ people and like characters in Kabuki or, you know, BL content so i think that's we really need to bear in mind 
but I still think that toxic masculinity is still going on in Japan, like all countries in the world. Yeah. Uh, especially, I would say maybe in regards to kids, I feel like dads in general, there is this image that they should not be the one to cuddle the kids and to comfort them and to play with them. They kind of have this role of, I have to go to the company and I have to work kind of thing and I have to be the provider. Um, and I think this is another aspect of toxic masculinity is I'm a man, so I should not, you know, care for the kids too much. Yeah, I mean, when I grew up till into adulthood, young adulthood, I just experienced a lot of like microaggressions, like men should be like that and like women should be like that. And, uh, you know, based on men's perspective, you know, women should supposed to follow them or something like that. And like it really like toxicate everyone's like mindset, like they gender stereotype pretty much everyone's mindset and behavior and pretty much so so the society tries to conform so that people can't be you know excluded from that you know confirming atmosphere here in japan so it's super toxic it is quite toxic and it's very detrimental to um your own development you know if you're being and it is something that we talk a lot in the feminist groups how we push little boys to think they cannot cry uh, they cannot play with dolls, uh, they cannot, which is, it's not a stereotype, you know, there's plenty of little boys who want to wear pink and who want to play with dolls and who are straight, you know, or who right. are going to be straight. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's definitely a problem in our society uh, to teach boys toxic masculinity and to tell them when they're around four to five, you're not allowed to hug other boys. Because it's something we say, you know, we see girls hugging all the time each other. Uh, it's a form of affection and it doesn't mean you're a lesbian. Oh. But, you know, little boys are men. I feel like it's something we tell them is that no, no, no hugs, you know, no contact. That's homo, you know, yeah, that's gay. Exactly. But it's not because you're a boy that you should not hug, you know. So that's an example of toxic masculinity. Yeah, that's why I, you know, identify myself as gender non-conforming. Like, why do I have to conform gender stereotyping? It's toxic to my mental health and, like, society, you know, as a whole. So, like, why I can't just, like, you know, enjoy some kind of activities with women or girls, like, just because I'm a man? Not really, but, like, still, you know? Like, it's not so necessary to divide, like, two genders like we shouldn't really like you know, define genders as just binary it's just so much more we need to just identify freely and like there should be no like restriction or you know limitation or so so i just really feel <laughs> very oppressed when it comes to like gender identities and, like you know expressions i'm in you know hugging someone who i feel like you know hugging that's your choice and why would you decide society hello you know it's like what you're saying is not everything is about binary and mm -hmm. i think gender and sexuality and so many things can be a spectrum really more than just two boxes right what i'm very curious about is when you know t you talking about your childhood and how you grew up I know nowadays what you're doing is that you're advising and you're teaching and I could see all the different activities you had in so many different schools about, you know, teaching and advising and counseling. Yeah. And that's so interesting because I would probably think that's not something you had the opportunity to see much when you were a kid, right? Mm -hmm. Those kind of advice and, and, you know, help from an adult. So like there are so many people who feel 
still like oppressed because of like their gender non-confirming like expressions and i feel like okay this is a safe environment at least inside the classroom you know like the, i make sure to provide a safe and a comfortable atmosphere and environment for you know um, students as well as like people with uh, exceptionalities i mean disabilities or psychiatric conditions so that they could like you know feel like exploring their own identities like no matter what kind of like gender identities or sexual orientations they might identify as like so yeah that providing the environment is like very first step for everyone to assure to have it was just an um special event or a task or yeah so i just like belong to the city hall right yeah it's a special so, project i mean so uh-huh so it was a, a public uh kind of function that you were giving so people could reach out to you reach out to the city hall and say we need uh, guidance and then you would be there for them yes would you say it's something that's often here in Japan? Do you see it in other countries, in other cities of Japan? Well, currently, yes. Like, especially, more. like, the city halls, you know, try to introduce, like, kodomo, you know, distru- I don't know, kodomoka? I don't kodomoka? know how to say, like... What is it, kodomoka? Desk of kodomo, I don't know how to say. Kodomoka, which would be, kodomo is kids, and ka would be department. Yeah, kind of. right. Uh-huh. So oh, they, that's so interesting. It's a, uh, office, it would be office. So office of kids, <laughs> kids' <laughs> office. Yeah. So like a lot of parents, especially like those who have like toddlers or in, like just like babies, infants, they just like come to the office and talk about their situations so that they could get some kind of advice or like any references they need, you know, feel more comfortable to, you know, get so that they can later get another, you know, like counseling or family support from suitable NGO and POs. So, you know, the next topic would be really what you're professional in uh, because you trained yourself into it and you studied it, which is psychology linked to sexology. You studied it outside in Japan, in uh, Lithuania. Would do you think it would be something you would have been able to, you know, to reach out here and to study here in Japan as well? Not really, no, unfortunately. Yeah, we don't really have any, like, sexology degree at an undergraduate as well as, like, master's level at all. Like, if you would like to study sexology or human sexuality as a scientific field, I guess you can just choose a specific topic to research at a doctorate level, a PhD level. Really... The image I have would be that here in Japan, if you want to touch on to sexuality or sexuality, then it becomes medical and scientific. But what you did in Lufiania was to study it more in uh, terms of society prism kind of uh, kind mm-hmm. of thing, like in the light of you know human interactions and stuff like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but like the important thing about psychology is it approaches every like human interaction, the behaviors and, the, you know, environmental functions from a biopsychosocial perspective. How about Japan? Would you say that is that, that those topics are talked about that like something like, you know, conferences or uh, panel discussions? I think Japan is catching up with like Western societies, actually. Like when I look up some conferences, like sexuality conferences, a lot of like medical doctors, which is a problem, actually, 
talk a lot about like sexual dysfunctions or issues and how they are, you know, related to society.、Mm-hmm. But like, not a lot of like psychologists or psychotherapists talk about sex and sexuality here in Japan because like the professions in sexuality, sex and sexuality, it just like only. Taken as medical doctors, like gynecologists and andrologists,、mm-hmm. like just only medical doctors. There's a stereotype here in Japan, which is we think we tend to think that Japanese people do not talk about intimate matters,、uh, including sex, and that it is taboo, and you know that it's not. There's even that image that we have about Japan, where、uh, Japanese people are not very sexually active. What's your opinion on that? What how do you feel about that image that a lot of foreigners have about Japanese people? Which I've been here for ten years and I can already tell as a preface that it's not true、mm-hmm. and that sex is a big thing in Japan.、Uh, but what's your personal opinion about that? Well, the stereotype actually tells kind of accurate, you know, message, but it's not totally true. Yeah, that's my impression. First of all, and what I why I think so is that basically、uh, we tend to have a、like, shame culture, so like the feelings of shame actually, you know,、um, prevents us from talking about intimate topics or, you know, expressing ourselves like in an intimate situation. So we tend to just you know, hide away or like somehow conceal those like, you know, intimate and private. You know, stuff in ourselves, so we just like shy away. You know, that's like basic our attitudes. So I guess that's why a lot of people from outside of Japan think we are not so open to such you know sensitive topics. Would you say that this feeling of shame is coming from fear of judgment? I think so, and the fear of judgment also comes from low self-esteem. And like lack of social skills or communication skills as well. I do not say like a lot of people, but like still, you know, when it comes to intimate relationships, committed relationships, people do not really know how to deliver, how to develop a sense of safety and a trust in a committed relationship, like vocally and behaviorally. So that is a huge, you know, issue. Not really an issue, but like problem for us, you know, Japanese people to be more expressive. We are not just like used to expressing ourselves that you know boldly. It's not true to say that Japanese people hide their emotions and are not,、um, you know, straightforward with their emotions like I sometimes hear、uh, white people thinking about Japanese. Because from my experience, I see a lot of my colleagues and friends, Japanese colleagues and friends, who do talk about their emotions and their feelings when they're with each other, when they feel safe, when. They can talk with their own language, which is not often the case with a Gaijin, a foreigner.、Uh, so that's something that foreigners should keep in mind: is that you're not part of their culture, you're not part of their country. So maybe they will not express their emotions that easily to you. Sexual education in schools is very important, even though it's so bad in France. But I feel like. If already when you're a kid you're being told that you should not talk about intimate stuff, neither your emotions but not also your sexual problems or anything, then it's a very bad start for you for who you're going to become as an adult. Because、mm-hmm. if already when you're a kid you're being taught it's taboo, then when you become an adult, 
how do you know that when you have a sexual um, experience with someone you're supposed to express consent you know yeah. or things like that if you weren't told that when you were a kid mm -hmm. and how is the sexual education going in japan simply it's not enough unfortunately we do not really introduce uh, comprehensive sexuality education which can, uh, children can learn a lot about uh, like giving consent and like, how to express and make a lot of decisions in a healthy manner like that's very psychological isn't it mm -hmm. but still like we just don't touch up on those you know specific oh. super important right. functional you know things about sex and sexuality we just like jump into for example contraception stis and uh, pregnancy that's it right but that's still this is still something that's given in schools then you still have some kind of lesson giving just very roughly about you know contraception and stuff that's yeah. still happening yeah just like a little bit you know like just an event once a year which is not enough right no it's not right and, you know, it's it's a big topic in France and other countries, the whole, oh, you should not talk to kids about sex and stuff. Um, it is my personal opinion that I think we should talk about it with them because even if they're not active, even if they don't want to be active, that's fine. But I bet they have a lot of questions. I had a lot of questions when I was, when I was a kid about sex. Right. And obviously you cannot talk about sex with kids the same way you can talk about it with adults. There is a way to formulate things and mm -hmm. there are professionals who can do that. Up until when I was junior high school student, I didn't really have any sexuality classes at all. But when I became a junior high schooler, I only had a PE class and only a PE teacher talked about pregnancy. Well, no way. Right. That's barely better than a Google or a to just talk about it with your buddies. Let's not even mention the whole LGBTQAI plus education, because that should be such a big part of the sexual education as well. Exactly. But I'm betting if you had zero in the first place, then LGBTQAI plus education was just non-existent. No, I really see though, still like there are a lot of like NPOs and NGOs, they talk a lot about like great sexuality education, like, you know, how to prevent and raise awareness of like sexual violence and how to protect, you know, it from you know, children from, you know, violence as well as like how to properly apply contraception and so on. And I do want to give a quick shout out here very quickly to, um, I think it's an NPO, but it's definitely an association called Voice Up Japan mm -hmm. that you probably know of. Right. And they are great because they are very active in Japan. And what they do offer is to open an office, uh, open, you know, a Voice Up branch yeah. in your university. I think wow. it's only university level. And you have voice up uh, Meiji for the University Meiji, voice up KO, voice up, you know. And they are a great resource to go to when you have questions about anything, about sexuality, about LGBTQI+. They're great. Yeah. So, like, voice up Japan is definitely part of the solution. I'm so glad they have, like, you know, started such a great initiative to talk about sex and sexuality so openly so that teenagers and even adults can ask a lot of questions they couldn't ask back in childhood like, mm -hmm. or even nowadays. Because, you know, if I just compare it to one of my experience, which is to go to the gynecologist, I cannot ask a single question to a gynecologist doctor. They have no idea what they're talking about. They don't want to talk about it most of the time. They're very dismissive. They're like get what you came for and that's it get out of the office kind of approach right 
And, you know, talking from a feminist point of view is one thing, but, like, if I apply that to LGBTQIA plus community, like, what do you do when you are a kid who's questioning yourself and who doesn't know what's going on with your body or with your expression Mm -hmm. or with your identity? Who do you talk to? Who do you go to? Exactly. That's really hard. What exactly I thought about what I was just growing up, like, questioning myself. And I couldn't really have any approachable accessible and reliable information or professionals at all like who could i actually talk to no way in more so in japanese right yeah because that's another barrier is to find the information in japanese not in english exactly yeah that that's a good point actually because like when i started learning english and i became a little bit more comfortable you know using english i finally found great resources that i could you know use for identifying myself more clearly and Mm -hmm. like accordingly try myself to be more who i am yeah yeah but yeah if which you know it's too bad because japan the japanese language is so great Mm -hmm. when you want to express stuff like non-binary um you know i think anything gender related in the japanese language can be easier in japanese than it can be in french for example because french is overly gendered The last thing that I wanted to talk about with you today is about your research and about the thesis that you wrote and the published um, research that you also uh, had. But what I could propose to you know people today listening to that podcast is maybe listening to you for a few minutes. Sure. So uh, when I conducted my studies, I was also experiencing some kind of like stigma because like talking about sex and sexuality is already stigmatized. So yes. it was hard. What I did to, you know, break out the stigma was basically to talk because that's how you start everything, you know. Communication. Exactly. Communication. So that really interested me, like sexual communication. What is that and and how people could do that? So maybe there are other variables like that interfered with sexual communication. And I came up with sexual shame and perceived social support. And actually, perceivable social support is not an interference. It's more like gut booster mm-hmm. of sexual communication. So my message here is basically in order to feel talk a lot about sex and sexuality, you need to find a reliable social support system such as family, friends, and, and or a significant other of yours. So uh, when you feel like your family member is not ready or not really open to talk about sex and sexuality with you, you could also try to find other people like friends and your partner. And to do so, you really need to be sure that you and your friends or partner are in that uh, safe place to talk about it. Because like, for example, talking about such a private and uh, you know intimate topic in public like a cafe it could actually embarrass yourselves as well as people around you so which is not an ideal place to talk about if your family is not ready um, you can always find friends you can find a community which is why the lgbtqia plus community is so important i really make a great parallel between feminists and LGBTQI plus community because it's the same thing. Find the people who agree with your ideas mostly yeah, and then make sure they're in a safe position. I have great feminist friends who don't want to talk about sex. That's fine. Right. And then talk about it because what you think you might be the only one experiencing 
you will find out that other people feel the same way and maybe they have solutions that you never thought about. Exactly, yeah. And just feeling like you're not alone anymore uh, in your problems is just such a step. Uh, when you talk about sex and sexuality, you can also try to not blame anyone or yourself as well, actually. Because, mm. like, people have so many things to share, like both positive and negative. And when it comes to sex and sexuality, you feel like you are not sufficient or enough. And it's not a great mindset. But it's super, nat like, really natural to think about that way in yourself because, like, how, you know, it reflects how society tells you to be like that. So, um, when you talk about it with your partner or friend, you just like, just shake it off of all your like negativity around and like try to be more open-minded, even though it's really difficult. And if you are open, um, your partner could be open as well because that's how human interactions actually happen in a psychological effect, you know? This is a great point. Whatever yeah. the person in front of you tells you about themselves, don't judge, don't blame, don't shame. Uh, one more thing I would like to say is that humans are also different every single person is totally different you know like you are you and uh, someone else is someone else so like even though you have specific you know grade all the positive experiences which doesn't really mean the other person or people have the exact same thing like maybe some other people have some kind of like traumatic experiences that they couldn't really let go of so not being not judgmental is an absolute you know start <laughs> of everything that's what what i want to say something are invisible uh yeah if you're in front of a racialized person if you're in front of a black person mm. asian person mm. then you might be educated enough to know that this is coming with society stigma and things like that but there are other aspects that you don't you don't see because it's part of the person's past right I feel like I could make you talk about um, psychology and sexology for basically days, uh, so I won't put you through that. We're going to call it an end today. You guys had some questions on the podcasts. Uh, we have it. I have the lists. Uh, there was quite a few, actually. What I propose is that we answer those questions on the podcast of Yoshi. So I will link it into the description of the episode and in Instagram. That's it for today. It was a great episode. I was, I'm really happy we were able to talk about all the topics we had. Yeah. Um, I will put everything online and on Instagram. You are, we can find you pretty much on all the platforms. We can find you on LinkedIn, Instagram. You have a link tree uh, with all the resources. So you're really uh, easy to find. I will follow your adventures in Canada. Oh, yeah. I hope you come back quickly to Japan, at least for holidays, so I can see you again. Gotcha. And thank you for coming today. Thank you so much for having me. It was an amazing experience in the conversation. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much.